Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Just before dawn on the morning of November 30th, 1999, thousands of protesters locked arms and marched into downtown Seattle. The protesters fanned out and blocked roads as they surrounded a convention center where a conference organized by the World Trade Organization was set to take place over the next four days. They dragged newspaper boxes, garbage cans and dumpsters into intersections and prevented delegates from holding their scheduled talks on global trade. Most of the demonstrators were peaceful, but among their ranks was a small core of protesters dressed in black clothes and ski masks, waiting for the right moment to unleash violence and mayhem. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we revisit one of the largest acts of mass civil disobedience in U.S. history, which marked the unofficial start of the anti-globalization movement. This is The Battle in Seattle. It's hard to imagine a time when the impact of globalization wasn't a widely discussed topic. But it really wasn't a mainstream concern until the end of the 1990s. That's when labor groups, environmentalists, human rights activists, and a broad coalition of other concerned citizens began sounding off more loudly about the dangers of free trade. Beginning in the 1980s, there was a growing push for free trade among nations by removing tariffs and regulations that blocked the international exchange of goods. The argument in favor of globalization from many economists and governments goes like this. When nations have free trade, the wealth of the prosperous nations can help lift developing nations out of poverty. They argue that a global economic system is the key to world prosperity and peace among nations. But others disagree, saying globalization and free trade leads to jobs being sent to developing nations where workers are treated poorly and make extremely low wages. Plus, it allows corporations to relocate to countries where environmental rules are less strict, leading to ecological disasters. The people and groups making these arguments, typically liberal left-wing progressives, call it a race to the bottom in terms of environmental issues, human rights, and labor standards. Meanwhile, at the other end of the political spectrum, conservative and right-wing nationalists are against free trade for an entirely different reason. They believe that globalization undermines the strength of individual nations in the global political arena. And they want protectionist economic regulations and barriers to foreign competition to remain in place. U.S. commentator and political candidate Pat Buchanan was among the leading right-wing opponents of global trade in the 90s and remains so today. We must not trade in our sovereignty for a cushioned seat at the head table of anybody's new world order. Buchanan, who ran in 2000 as a Reform Party candidate in the U.S. presidential election, believes that the United States shouldn't focus on global trading, but on protecting its status as a superpower. Various social reform groups had spoken out against aspects of globalization for decades, 
But it wasn't until the late 90s that protests started making headlines in North America. In November 1997, Canada hosted an APEC summit in Vancouver, which attracted a couple thousand protesters who called out the dangers of free trade proposals being considered by the leaders of 18 Asia-Pacific countries attending the meeting. Student protesters, along with trade unionists and church groups, accused APEC of putting corporate profits before human rights. The event made international headlines when police pepper-sprayed the crowd after protesters tore down a security fence near the summit location at the University of British Columbia. It was an age before smartphone video regularly captured police brutality, so people were shocked by news video footage that showed an RCMP officer pepper-spraying students only a few seconds after ordering them off a road to clear a path for dignitaries. Later in the day, then-Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien added insult to injury when he said at a news conference that he had no plans to raise human rights issues with APAC leaders telling reporters he doesn't think APEC will ever have human rights on its agenda. As for the use of pepper spray on the protesters, that didn't seem to concern Prime Minister Chrétien either. For me, pepper, I put it on my plate. (laughs) Next. In the days following the APEC summit, there were also allegations of inappropriate strip searches of female students, as well as other rights abuses by the RCMP. Other conferences and summits like the APAC meeting in Vancouver became targets for anti-globalization activists during the late 90s, including WTO summits in 1997 and 1998. Leslie Wood, associate professor of sociology at York University, says these anti-globalization protests were inspired by the Mexican rebel group known as the Zapatistas. Which was uh, uh, saying that the North American Free Trade Agreement was, you know, against people and for corporations, and we needed instead something that was going to fight this drift towards neoliberalism. Inspired by this push against globalization, on June 18, 1999, simultaneous protests were held in about 50 cities around the world to coincide with the G8 meeting in Cologne, Germany. London was considered ground zero for the coordinated demonstrations, and it had one of the biggest protests, which featured 300 slow-moving cyclists disrupting traffic in London's financial district. But that was just a taste of what was to come five months later. Before I get into that, let me do a little explainer on the WTO. The World Trade Organization was established in 1995 to monitor trade and resolve trade disputes. Prior to the WTO, international trade was governed by the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, also known as GATT, which was put in place in 1948 and was actually only supposed to be a provisional measure, but it remained in effect for about 50 years. From its creation, the WTO was targeted by a wide coalition of leftist groups and labor unions. They accused the Geneva-based agency of operating in secrecy to build a world trading system that tolerates sweatshops, strips forests, and benefits only international corporations. In 1999, Seattle was selected to host the third ministerial conference of the WTO which would bring together trade ministers from 135 countries. The purpose was to set an agenda for the new millennium and decide which trade issues they would focus on for the next three years. 
It was the first time that the WTO conference was held in North America. The previous two summits had been held in Singapore and Geneva. When the Bill Clinton White House selected Seattle to host the event, Mayor Paul Schell was thrilled, and it seemed like a perfect fit. Seattle and Washington State as a whole had long been called the most trade-dependent region in all of the U.S., and civic leaders had positioned Seattle as the poster child for free trade. But the post-grunge city was also a hotbed of political radicalism and a stronghold of the labor movement. We just got lucky in a lot of ways that the WTO chose Seattle, um, chose the sort of epicenter of the direct action movement here in North America. That's John Sellers. In 1999, he was head of a group called the Ruckus Society, which leads direct action protests on environmental and economic issues. Sellers is now a bit of a legend in the activist world. Mother Jones has called him a career thorn in the side of the establishment. But in 1999, the events in Seattle were essentially Sellers' coming out party. Before the WTO convention, Sellers and the Ruckus Society held an action camp in Washington state, basically a training camp for anti-globalization activists. That brought together uh, folks from all over the Pacific Northwest, um, the U.S. and Canada, who had significant direct action experience uh, in the field, who were familiar with working in affinity groups or action teams. And um, we asked anyone, for for anyone that came to that camp, it was two months um, before the ministerial, and we asked uh, that everyone who came to that camp commit to organizing and coming back to Seattle with a team to take action with, whether it was an affinity group or an action team. From this action camp, a group called the Direct Action Network was born, which set a goal of shutting down the upcoming WTO conference through blockades. To prepare, the Ruckus Society rented a warehouse and made hundreds of lockboxes, which would be used to chain protesters together. We used either plastic or steel tube, a four-inch in diameter steel tube, so that people can put their arms into the tube. And uh, the tubes are about two feet long, maybe two and a half feet long. And in the middle of the tube, at the very center, is, is welded a, a pin, a bolt, maybe a quarter inch thick, uh, maybe a little more. And each person that wanted to lock inside there would wear um, a dog collar on their wrist with a carabiner clipped off to that dog collar. So they have a chain around their wrist. We call that the jewelry that the, that the blockaders wear. So if everybody has their bracelet on, their jewelry on, they can reach their arm into the tube and clip their carabiner to that pin in the center of the tube. And when the cops come and say, how are you locked in there? You can really tell them with a straight face, very securely. I'm locked in here very securely. And if you pull my arm too hard, you're going to break my wrist. But the trick is that if people, you know, if a cop is being unsafe or they want to get out of there, they can unclip the carabiner. They're in control uh, so they can they can pull out at any time. The various groups that trained with the Ruckus Society and the many others intending to attend the protests in Seattle worked for months to plan a wide range of events. Professor Leslie Wood says they employed democratic organizing techniques that are still emulated today by protest movements like Black Lives Matter and the global climate movements. One of the, the 
the ways of organizing that became really associated with Seattle what had, uh, was this idea of having small affinity groups, groups of people that you could work together, coordinated through a spokes council so that you'd come to a large meeting and uh, be able to make decisions together through kind of trying to achieve some sort of consensus. And you see, this this is something that had come out of the feminist movement, had come out of the anti-nuclear movement um, in the US, but it was kind of really ratcheted up to a much broader scale in this at that moment. At the previous WTO conferences, barely any TV cameras and journalists had shown up. But this time, all eyes were on Seattle, with thousands of activists expected to descend on the conference. The day before opening ceremonies, a diverse group took to the city's downtown streets. Blue-collar workers and anti-poverty groups marched alongside environmentalists dressed as sea turtles and monarch butterflies. At the same time, direct action protests were taking place throughout the city. A French sheep farmer named José Beauvais led a crowd at a Seattle McDonald's opposed to the trade talks, chanting, No new round, shut it down. The farmer had made international headlines earlier that year when he was arrested trying to dismantle a McDonald's sign in France. Meantime, John Sellers, along with four other activists, employed an eye-catching tactic to get their message across. It was visible in the early morning from the freeway heading south into Seattle. The Rainforest Action Network had unfurled a large banner from a 150-foot crane. And with the giant anti-WTO billboard were two activists hanging from ropes with a clear message. Our message today that we hope to send was that the World Trade Organization is a threat to our democracy, to our hard-won environmental health, safety, and labor laws. The disruptive but non-violent action closed a construction site and tied up nine police cruisers and a dozen officers all morning. The massive banner showed one-way street arrows labeled democracy and WTO, pointing in opposite directions. Police eventually arrested the activists, including John, but they left the banner on the crane. The Seattle Police Department, they weren't comfortable going out under the arm of that crane. So the steel workers went up and grabbed the banner and marched with it the next day. Uh, so that was pretty fun. John and the other activists were taken to the police station where they were booked on trespassing charges. He says while they were being processed, most of the police officers at the station were pretty supportive of the protesters. I remember this one uh, African-American sergeant kind of picked us out as we were going through processing and, and brought a bunch of rookies out and said, you know, look at these guys. I want you to see these guys. These guys are, you know, walking in the footsteps of Martin Luther King. That You know, they're, you know, honoring the civil rights movement. This is, you know, what they did today was heroic. And, and he really kind of understood, you know, he saw us, I felt seen by him, and he placed us in history, which was really super cool. On the morning of November 30th, 1999, a day that is now referred to as N30, protesters gathered before dawn at several locations near the Washington State Convention Center. In a cold rain, organizers handed out picket signs and offered legal advice on what to do if they were arrested. Answer any question you might have about avoiding arrest, about getting arrest, about A rally of activist protesters. They planned to strike early with the objective of shutting down the WTO at all costs. It's certain some will be arrested and they're instructed on how to act. 
I am going to remain silent. I want a lawyer. Can we all say that? I am going to remain silent. I want a lawyer. Protesters were young and old, from all walks of life, representing a broad spectrum of issues. Most were from the U.S., but about 2,000 were bussed in from Canada, and some traveled from overseas to attend the event. According to Professor Wood, Seattle marked the beginning of a new era for the protest movement, with an emphasis on creativity. So you see puppetry and music and celebration as being a real part of protest. And so we would critique, you know, we're not just going to march in a circle, right? which was sort of what we were contrasting ourselves to the past protests, the sense that it was sort of dreary. And instead, we were going to go and be celebratory and be alive through kind of creative direct action. And not try and get arrested, but try and be effective at the disruption. With drums beating, marchers chanted and moved toward the city center without police interference. Once they got near the convention center, protesters immediately linked arms and began blocking key intersections. Some chained themselves together with the lockboxes built by the Ruckus Society, others used bicycle locks. About 25,000 protesters poured into the area, closing off all streets leading to the convention center, just as delegates started to make their way over to the conference. Delegates staying in nearby hotels had planned to walk over for the opening ceremony, but when they went outside, they were turned back by the swelling crowds. Even U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan could not get through the crowd. As a result, the opening ceremony was cancelled. Then, the first official session of the talks set to take place in the afternoon was also postponed. Instead, delegates got together in small groups at their hotels and held talks by phone. Meantime, crowds outside continued to block the intersections. John Sellers says for a couple of hours, it was one of the best giant street parties. With Teamsters and Turtles dancing in the streets together. So it was, it was, a, great, it was a great time and a great party um, for the first few hours while we were, you know, we, we shut them down. We, were, we had unquestioningly um, succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. Everything was peaceful. Protesters kept each other in line, chanting, no violence and be nice. So it came as a surprise when officers in riot gear moved toward the crowd with nightsticks out with plans to clear the intersection of 6th and University. The activists remained in place, sitting down, resisting orders to leave the area. And that's when police began firing tear gas canisters and rubber pellets into the crowd. And I remember seeing that same African-American sergeant that I had seen the night before when we were getting processed. And at first, you know, he had his helmet off and we could see each other. And, you know, he saw me and I saw him. And we were sort of, you know, like making eye contact and sort of talking. And I just remember um, being so sad when he put his that gas mask on, which I think just removes the humanity of those cops. And they just become, you know, sort of, anonymous machines and they look like stormtroopers and they act like stormtroopers. I think it's a lot easier for them to behave like stormtroopers. And, you know, I was, I remember screaming at him, you know, Sarge, you know, these are the people that you were talking about last night. We are these people like this. is You don't have to do this. You know, we're peaceful. Around the corner, a group of anarchists dressed in black with ski masks covering their faces seized on the chaos and began throwing rocks and street barricades at store windows. 
smashing big glass storefronts at Nordstrom, Starbucks, and Banana Republic. They gleefully spray-painted buildings, slashed tires, and lit fires. There is the armored tank there, police and riot gear there donning their gas masks. You can only, uh, don't even have to imagine anymore. We know what's coming very shortly at this point in time. The bonfire continues to burn right now in the middle of the street. It looks as if people are uh, leaving the Starbucks store alone at this point in time. But then again, uh, the majority of the windows have been broken out. Or they've been ransacked inside and the coffee, uh, people are stealing pounds of coffee and all of this. So you, you know that they don't have any great purpose Around one o'clock, a few hours after the mayhem first began, another 25,000 people made their way into the downtown core. The parade of workers and their families had just attended a labor rally organized at Memorial Stadium next to the Space Needle. They heard speeches from various people against the WTO, including the head of the Teamsters Union, James Hoffa Jr., who told the crowd, we're going to change the WTO or we're going to get rid of the WTO. Over the next several hours, stinging waves of tear gas choked downtown Seattle as police fired repeated volleys of tear gas and pepper spray. You can see it uh, rising into the air right now. In just the last few minutes, I'd say five or six of those canisters launched, and it's really getting pretty thick. Uh, They just are not letting up on this, uh, continuing to use the gas, hoping to push folks back. And we can see a number of riot police running into uh, position. The scene resembled U.S. civil rights and anti-war protests of the 1960s and 70s. Norm Stamper was the Seattle's chief of police in 1999. He explains why they decided to clear the area. So we were convinced that if we had some kind of an emergency, uh, somebody bleeding out, for example, from a gunshot wound or a stabbing or run over by an automobile or in cardiac arrest on the 27th floor of the Sheridan, we wouldn't be able to get uh, an aid car, an ambulance or police car or what have you through that crowd. Well, so we felt we needed it on reflection. I'm asking myself to this day, did we really? Did we really have to have that intersection Uh, just because it was part of our our original planning? Where was our contingency planning? Uh, But that's an area where we certainly fell down. At the time of the WTO protests, Stamper had been a chief of police in Seattle for five years. Prior to that, he had spent his career in San Diego, working up the policing ranks, beginning in the 1960s. But during my time in San Diego, we had campus unrest, we had civil rights insurrections, we had major anti-war demonstrations, Vietnam going strong in those days, uh, and we had a, a default strategy when we felt overwhelmed, and that was trot out the tear gas and apply liberally. It was considered a force multiplier. You don't have enough people to hold a line. You think that line is essential to public safety. You trot out the tear gas and use it. And we did that. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a colossal mistake from my point of view now. I do have colleagues who disagree with that. They believe it was the only thing we could do under the circumstances. Uh, but I absolutely believe that it was a big mistake. The police continued to move through parts of downtown with armored personnel carriers. As white clouds of tear gas passed down the streets, protesters coughed, cried, and asked for water. Further back, groups of demonstrators chanted, the whole world is watching. 
In at least a few instances, uniformed officers fired rubber-coated pellets at protesters who the police believed were charging police lines. By mid-afternoon, Seattle Mayor Paul Schell declared a civil emergency, implementing a curfew from 7 p.m. to dawn for the whole downtown area and bringing in police from nearby cities to enforce it. At the mayor's request, Washington State Governor Gary Locke sent in 200 unarmed National Guard soldiers. By evening on the first day, the measures had worked. The estimated crowd of 50,000 people had dwindled. Amazingly, there were no serious injuries, but dozens of people were arrested. Most were charged with minor offenses, but a few of the rioting anarchists faced felony charges of inciting a riot. The protesters dressed in black with bandanas or ski masks covering their faces, who smashed windows and lit fires, are known as black bloc anarchists. They represented a fraction of the thousands of mostly peaceful protesters in Seattle. But their violent tactics put them on center stage. And according to John Sellers, it skewed the narrative about what happened on N30. The dominant story is that a riot happened led by um, young, angry boy, white boys in, dressed in black, and that the Seattle Police Department saved the day and the battle in Seattle was like, you know, a riot uh, that the, the Seattle Police Department had to subdue. But the, you know, the true history is that there was a full-on cop riot with chemical, you know, chemical ordinance being, you know, unleashed on peaceful protesters. And that hours later, um, the Black Bloc came along, used the thousands of people who were risking their freedom and their lives as cover to beat up a bunch of corporate property. You know, to smash up uh, Starbucks and Bank of America and McDonald's and other places. The Black Bloc tactic first appeared in the 1980s in West Germany. At that time, there was a counterculture movement of people who lived in abandoned buildings called squats because they wanted to escape capitalism and government controls. They first formed Black Blocs to prevent evictions from squats. The tactic spread throughout activist networks and punk music, reaching the U.S. and Canada in the 1990s. The WTO protest was a turning point for the tactic, which for the first time captured mainstream attention. Since Seattle, the Black Bloc tactic continues to be deployed by anarchists at various types of protests, most recently at anti-police demonstrations and Antifa rallies. When the sun came up on the second day of the WTO conference, armored personnel carriers were posted outside the convention center and empty buses were waiting to haul away protesters. National Guardsmen and private security guards stood watch along a stretch of boarded-up storefronts. Anarchy symbols and other graffiti painted by Black Bloc protesters the day before had already been cleaned up. Officials were determined to prevent a repeat from the day before. Protesters were allowed on sidewalks, but not permitted to block the streets. This led to several tense standoffs with police and National Guard troops. When about 300 protesters gathered near the Sheridan Hotel and sat down on the street, police drove up in an armored personnel carrier and shouted through a bullhorn for the activists to disperse or be arrested. The cameras are watching, the world is watching! I said back off! The world is watching! The world is watching! The world is watching! 
As police arrested dozens of protesters just on the fringe of the no protest zone, other tactical teams were dealing with a larger group of protesters that made their way back into yesterday's battle zone right in the heart of downtown Seattle. Police periodically swept the demonstrators back, loading them onto the waiting buses. Officials were bent on making sure the scheduled talks at the conference would take place, and they did. There was even an appearance by Bill Clinton on day two. He addressed a crowd of delegates, using the opportunity to argue that trade can help both poor and rich countries. And he urged the EU to reduce subsidies to its farmers so exporters from other nations, including the U.S., can sell more products to Europe. Clinton also spoke about the protests and violence from the day before. I think that what the WTO people are here should pay attention to the nonviolent protests and should open the process and find a way to legitimately consider the, the grievances uh, of the poorest nations as well as those of us who believe that the, we have to give greater concern to the environment and the labor standards and our trade measures. And I think that's what I think they should listen to. They should, they should give no consideration to the violent people because nobody supports them, nobody believes in it, and what they did was wrong. It was just vandalism. On Thursday, the third day of the conference, protests continued, but police appeared to have the situation firmly under control. Downtown Seattle at first light, a much different scene than the last two days. Gone from sight are the throngs of police in riot gear. They're now in regular uniform, and there are fewer of them on the street. For the first time in three days, stores around the convention center where the world trade talks are taking place open for business and clean up the damage from the riot. That damage and lost Christmas business is estimated at $10 million. By Friday, the criticism over how police had handled the protests a few days earlier had reached a fever pitch. As a result, Police Chief Norm Stamper announced his resignation. I believed that I had blown it. Uh, I was beating myself up and I was feeling kind of brittle and I was feeling... uh, There was a certain amount of defensiveness, to be honest. It's like, hey, we tried. (laughs) We, We did our best. Well, clearly, I was thinking our best was not good enough, and I've let down my cops, and I've let down this city. I wanted to help depoliticize the debriefing, the critiquing, and for that matter, even the teeth gnashing and the hand wringing and the second guessing. I wanted to depoliticize as much of that as possible. At that point, Stamper still felt the use of tear gas was necessary. It wasn't until five years later that he changed his position. The biggest mistake of my career uh, was authorizing the use of of tear gas against nonviolent, non-threatening protesters. But John Sellers says Chief Stamper was just a cog in a machine. He believes the decision to move in on peaceful protesters came from above. You know, Clinton administration was super embarrassed and had egg on their face, and they you know, told Seattle um, and the mayor and and Chief Stamper to open up the, the conference by whatever means necessary. On Friday, the WTO convention wrapped up without an agreement. Disappointed delegates failed to establish an agenda for a new round of global trade negotiations. Despite working through the night Thursday and all day Friday, negotiators were unable to get approval on a draft 15 page document which didn't even include a top item of President Clinton's. He wanted to link future trade deals to minimum protections of core labor standards, such as a ban on child labor and guaranteeing the right to join labor unions. 
the WTO agreed to try again the following year in Geneva. When word got out to protesters that the convention had concluded without success, crowds who remained outside the convention center and the hotel where delegates were staying cheered and high-fived, calling it a victory for democracy. Professor Wood says the impact was huge. There was no agreement for that round, and really the WTO has um, never really regained its momentum. And this is partly due to the protests, because the protests allowed the less powerful players from Africa, from the Caribbean, uh, to, uh, to say, no, this isn't working. This is clearly not a legitimate process. And so the, basically the process lost its legitimacy. Because the protests were successful in shutting down the WTO conference, it set the stage for a new generation of social activism. The battle in Seattle, or N30, influenced similar movements for years to come, in particular, the Occupy movement against economic inequality. John Sellers said Seattle also created a new dialogue about global capitalism. I'm proud of the fact that we helped um, to make it okay to critique capitalism. Uh, you know, in 1999, 1998, if you started talking about the evils of capitalism, people would just be like, what are, you know, who are you, some, you know, communist? Chief Stamper says one thing it didn't change is how police handle civil disobedience. He says it's tragic that tear gas is still being used on peaceful protesters as seen in 2020 during George Floyd protests. During his retirement, Stamper has written a book about U.S. policing in which he recommends changes to what he calls a broken system. But the bottom line is the police are still embracing a we're the cops and you're not mentality. Uh, that, that kind of arrogance is guaranteed to piss Americans, and for that matter, Canadians off. Uh, we believe in our freedoms. Uh, the, 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 you know, without getting too lecturish here, I will just say that the problem with American policing is that it's paramilitary, it is bureaucratic, it is top-down, and it is insulated and isolated from the very people It is here to protect and serve. Stamper says he believes the prescription for the broken system is true community policing, which includes an authentic partnership between the police and citizens. Thanks for listening to this look back at the rise of anti-globalization and the battle in Seattle. A special thanks to the listeners who suggested this topic, including Matt, a great friend and supporter of the show. Lots of guests on this episode. Thanks to each of them for taking the time to share their wisdom on this topic. I will put links to each of them in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find info on how you can follow History of the 90s on social media. History of the 90s is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review us. And just a heads up, History of the 90s is taking a very short break. We will be back with a new episode on April 28th. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. (laughs) 